Pasha's Ve'era deals with magic, black magic. The Pasha's Ve'era is the story of the first group of Makas, the first seven of the biblical plagues. And the preliminary osos, the signs that Moshe performed on behalf of God before them, the staff turning into a snake, water, blood, the hand becoming a mitzvah. And we know, the Torah explains to us in detail, that Paro's sorcerers, the word is chartumim, tough word to translate, sorcerer, necromancer, something like that. Paro's people, Paro's magicians, tried to match Moshe. They went toe-to-toe, step-by-step with Moshe for the first couple of plagues, for the staff, for the staves and the serpents, and for the blood, and then the frogs. Each time the Torah says that they tried to match Moshe, they tried to show Paro, they tried to show the people that they could do whatever Moshe did, until Makas Kinim, the first time of the, 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 fir- the first time before the ten plagues with the staff and the snake. It says, after Moshe did those, it says, Paro called his sages, his sorcerers. The commentaries discuss why the Torah keeps using different words. Sometimes his chachamim, his wise men, sometimes machashvim, the sorcerers. Sometimes Khartoumim Mitzrayim, the necromancers. We're not going to get into the details of why the Torah might do that, but anyway, it says he called them. They did the same thing. They each cast, each man cast down his staff and it turned into a monster, a snake, a serpent, something like that. Paro wasn't impressed. They went on. Plague of blood. It says Moshe and Aaron turned the water into blood. It says that, again, Paro's Khartoumim, they decided to try. It says, They too, the Khartoumim again, did the same thing, and Paro wasn't impressed again. So too, Again, the sorcerers did the same thing. The third time, the last time they, they tried was Makas Kinim, the third plague, Lice. It says that once again, they tried to do their thing with their incantations. This time they failed for reasons that are not entirely clear. Medrash has an idea. They failed. And this time the Khartoumim, they had been shown they could not match Moshe, they could not beat him. So the Khartoumim were forced to concede. They said, This is not something we can do anymore. This is, uh, this is a different level. This is the finger of God. Nevertheless, of course, Paro does not listen. And from then on, the Khartoum are out of the picture. They, they, they don't even try anymore. Arov, Dever, Shechin, and so on. The Khartoum are done. They lost. They, they decisively were vanquished in the contest. And we don't hear much more out of them. Now, these stories of what the Khartoumim of Mitzrayim did for the first couple of Makos is one of the two instances that I'm aware of in the biblical text where the Torah describes the actual practice of black magic. The Torah has many prohibitions, many rules, many laws, mitzvahs against the practice of magic. Executing witches, Ov, Yedoni, Daresh Alamesim, Chaver Chaver, Kosim Ksamim, Menachesh, and so on. The Torah spends a lot of time prohibiting it, but those are just instructions telling you not to do it. In terms of actual narrative passages where the Torah describes the practice of magic, there are two in Tanakh. This is one, this narrative for the first several dozen psukim in Va'era. The other is in the end of Shmuel Aleph. The climactic, there's a climactic battle between the, the Plishtim and the forces of King Shoal. On the eve of the battle, Shoal is frantic, Shoal is desperate, God will not communicate with him through all the normal channels, prophecy, dreams, or vitumim. 
He cannot get any word from God about what's going to happen on this uh, momentous battle. Finally, in desperation, he says, let us find ourselves a Balas Ov, a witch, a sorceress of some sort. They tracked down a Balas Ov. The great irony was that Shaul himself had led a crusade of extermination against witches. So when he finally found a witch, she was terrified. She said, you know, what if the king finds out? I'll be in big trouble. Shaul had come disguised. He said, don't worry, nothing will happen to you. So finally, the woman agrees to ply her craft. She says she was apparently a necromancer. She was communing with the dead. She asked Shaul, who do you want? Who should I bring? She, he says, I want to see my mentor Shmuel, who had died by now. The Shul, Shmuel had been the one who had appointed him, but they later had a falling out because of Shaul's failures as king, and Shmuel had rejected him. God had rejected him, but Shaul was still desperate to hear something from Akash Baruch Hu, something from Shmuel, so the sorceress raises Shmuel from the dead. This is an entire parak in Sefer Shmuel. The Shmuel comes, Shmuel tells him that your, your fate is dire, you're going to lose the battle the next day, you're going to die, your sons will die, and sure enough, that is what happened. The very next day, the Jews had a calamitous defeat at the hands of the Plishtim. Shaul died, his three sons, Yonason and two other sons, died, and that basically marked the end of the monarchy of Shaul. They still had remnants in the beginning of Shmuel Bays, but that was basically the destruction of the house of Shaul. So these two stories, the power of sorcerers in the beginning of Eira and the witch of Ein Dor and Shmuel, these are the, t- the two narrative accounts in Tanakh of the practice of black magic. I- I'm going to be using today black magic largely synonymously with magic. There may or may not be white magic, but we're not going to be discussing that. Our discussion will revolve largely around black magic, magic using uh, impure forces, dark forces, and so on. So the question we have to ask, of course, is is there such a thing as black magic? We generally don't believe there is today. The, the genre in fiction and fantasy is still pretty popular. Everything from Star Wars with its force to uh, George R.R. R. Martin, Song of Ice and Fire, and so on, Game of Thrones, but there's plenty of magic to go around, Tolkien. But we like it, we enjoy it, we enjoy reading about it, some of us do anyway. But the question is, do we, do we believe in magic and in, in, the, in the dark arts as an actual thing or not? Is it all simply uh, fantasy and fiction and chicanery and fraud? So what is, the Torah's, what, was, what is the Torah's view? What did Jews historically believe? And that's the question I want to address today. Obviously, if we don't believe it, then we're going to have to address. We have these two parashias where the Torah just relates the practice of magic and seems to, seems to say these things actually happen. We have to explain We have to find ways to reinterpret these narratives if we are not going to believe in magic. Now, so I I want to discuss first this question, discuss what some of the traditional positions have been, and then at the end I want to turn to a halachic question, which is the performance of magic shows for entertainment. Today, what is the halachic stance on this? Are these these types of shows permitted or not? So turning turning first to the first question, do we believe, does Judaism, has Judaism historically believed in the practice of black magic? The answer, as it usually would be in a question like this, is that it is a machlokis. We find in the medieval period a fairly robust discussion. There were important thinkers on both sides of the question. So, begin with Ibn Ezra, number one here. Very short and to the point, Ibn Ezra at his best. Ibn Ezra says, Reke moach amru. Brainless people, empty-headed people say, if not, if not, Ov, Ov is one kind of sorcery, the kind that Shoals Witch was practicing. If Ov and these other types of sorcerous practices were not true, why would the Torah have prohibited them? Why would the Torah waste its time on nonsense? Ani Omer, the Benazra says, I disagree with these, these brainless people. I say, Hepach I say just the opposite, or contraire. 
The only thing the Torah prohibits is that which is false, is fraud and deception. Example, he says, analogy of Adazara. Elilim, Selim, terms of negation of Adazara. Certainly, normatively, we assume has no power, is nothing, is worthless. So Kishof, sorcery is, is, is the same. These are foolish and worthless practices that have no truth and no substance to them. People will let astray by them, and the Torah therefore prohibited them. And this is clear, he says. That is absolutely the, the correct opinion, he says. Magic is bogus, completely and totally bogus. The most famous and most important exponent of this position, of course, is the Rambam. The Rambam says this in numerous places, perhaps most uh, eloquently and directly in the Yad HaZaka, in his halachic work on the laws of Adazara, Hilchazakum. So the Rambam, after the Rambam, on the one hand, as a halachist par excellence, he goes through the Talmudic passages. The Talmud spends a lot of time, we mentioned earlier, kind of the, the survey of all the different names for different types of sorcery, Ma'odein, Menachesh, Kosem, Chavr Chavr, Darish Alamesim, Ov, Yedoni. So the, the Gemara spends a lot of time delineating what all these different practices are, which Pesukim refer to which ones, and the Rambam, also faithful to the Gemara, spends a lot of time categorizing, giving you a whole taxonomy of different types of sorcery and magic, then the Rambam says, after he's done, he says, all these things I've been cataloging for you, these are all false and fraudulent, these are the things by which the idolaters misled people into, into believing in them and worshipping their, uh, their idols. Jews who are sages, who are elevated sages, he says, shouldn't be seduced by such nonsense, he says. You shouldn't believe there's anything there. Lo nachash biyakov, lo kesem Israel. He says, the non-Jews, the pagans into whose country you invaded, those are the ones who believe in such things. He says, not you. These things are utter nonsense, he says. Anyone who believes that these are true things, but the Torah prohibited them, that's a terrible belief. Then these people are foolish, mechastri adas, and so on. Balea chachma, understand that all these things are not chachma, they're tohu, they're hevel, that only, only foolish people of imperfect, unsound mind believe. That is the Rambam's position, repeated in numerous of his different works. So that's the Benezer and the Rambam, that magic is bogus, there is no such thing whatsoever. That is their view. Now, the opposing view was, of course, held by more traditional thinkers among the medieval scholars. We find, for example, the Rashba. The Rashba was a man of great humility. In the particular passage in question, you read the first paragraph, he shows great deference to the Rambam. Although he disagrees with the Rambam, he takes his view very seriously. He doesn't want to reject it out of hand. The Rashba was consulted about a, the Rashba was asked, was not asked about a theological question, he was asked a very practical question. The, one, the other area of halacha and kishuf, besides magic shows, the other area that is very practical today is the practice of various forms of alternative medicine. Now, not going to get into the general question of the efficacy of alternative medicine, just going to note that for our, for our purposes tonight, alternative medicine has two, two, two kinds for our purposes. First, we have simply herbs and different types of uh, drugs and, and stuff that works, potentially could work on principles very similar to Western medicine. We happen not to have any model by which some ingredient would work, and we don't have maybe evidence for it, and we don't understand why it would work, but it's kind of medicine, like it would work on similar principles, broadly speaking, to our medicine. We're not talking about that. The other type of alternative medicine is the one that deeply, and there's not a sharp line division, but the other area, the more problematic area from a logic perspective, is the type that involves, that invokes all kinds of Eastern theories, religious theories, theories of the soul, theories of mystic energy. Some of that stuff, I'm no expert on Eastern theology and philosophy, but some of that stuff 
can get dangerously close to Avodazara and so on, and to other types of prohibited practice, to sorcery. So from the Rashba's time and down to contemporary times, this was always, and still is among posting today, this is always a very big issue. What types of practices are innocent? What types fall afoul of the various prohibitions against idolatry, sorcery, and in general following pagan customs? So the Rashba was asked a version of this question, a very early version of this question. The Rashba was talking about something called the Tzuras Ha'arye, the drawing of the lion. This was a therapeutic procedure. It was believed to work. The people who were posing the question claimed that it had been empirically demonstrated to work. We may have our doubts, but for arguendo, we'll assume the facts as presented that this, uh, this treatment modality worked. There was this idea that for a certain disease, the therapy would be you would draw some kind of image of a lion. There might have been incense offered according to some versions of the treatment. Maybe not. This was debated exactly how it was done. And people would get better. In the Midbar, they looked at the Nachash. Yes. So I, so I do want to make clear that uh, all Rishonim agree, including the Rambam, at least according to all traditional understandings, all, everyone agrees that God makes miracles, that God, we have, that we have the Ten Plagues and Kriyas Yamsa, foundations of Aramuna. We, all, we, we believe in Chiesa Mason, one of the 13 principles of faith. We all agree that God has performed miracles in the past. He will perform miracles in the future. The biblical text is full of them. Now, again, how many there are, the Rambam sometimes rationalized some of them. He tried to minimize some of the miracles. The, the, the details, the quantity, how many of them, we can argue. But it's, it's pretty fundamental. Virtually any mainstream you know, Jewish thinker is going to agree that God has and will perform miracles. The example of the golden, of the Nechash and Nechoshes, the copper, the copper serpent, would be one. We're discussing the idea not people as emissaries of God, just ordinary sorcerers on their own performing magic to... Uh, let, 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 let me try to get through more of my prepared remarks. Well, maybe we'll take questions a little bit later. So, so the so, so the question is, the question is, was this tourist aria permitted? Do we allow the? Was this allowed to? Was this, can you do this to uh, to treat disease? So again, we have two questions. Does it work? That's not a halakhic question. That's more of an empirical question. And B possibly dependent on the first question, possibly not. The question is, is it permitted? Does this fall afoul of any of the various prohibitions against pagan, sorcerous, idolatrous practices? So this was a vigorous debate in the Rashba's time. And part of the argument hinged on the question of, does the fact that it works, again, arguendo, the fact that it works, is that a reason to permit it? There is a Gemara. The Gemara has the, the, the expression, the principle, kol Anything which has therapeutic validity is not prohibited under these rules against pagan practices. So on the surface of it, that seems to indicate anything which you can empirically demonstrate. Now again, what does it mean to empirically demonstrate something today? We have elaborate rules for with statistics, with trials, with double-blind trials. We have observational trials. We have all kinds of trials. Obviously, Chazal and the early post were not dealing with modern notions of empirical evidence, but whatever, whatever the standard, halacha obviously, like law, halacha has its own standards of empirical evidence, but if something would be demonstrated to be efficacious by empirical methods, is that a reason to permit it? And again, the argument in favor is that because the Talmud says, that was one argument that was thrown out to say that if it works, it has to be permitted. Now, the Rashba's correspondent, another rabbi in his time, did not consider this the correct argument. He argued, very similar to the empty-headed people cited by the Benazir, he argued that, that, on the contrary, everything the Torah prohibits must work. The Torah wouldn't waste its time prohibiting things that don't work, prohibiting silly things. So everything in the Torah works, and the Torah still prohibits it. 
So he wanted to argue that just because it works is not a reason to prohibit it. It's just like any other form of kishuf, even though it's prohibited, even though it works, it is still prohibited. So, the, so that's the background to this question of the Rashba. So the Rashba here, number three, the Rashba says very modestly, begins the tshuva by saying, I'm going to you know, debate and uh, involve myself in the words of both you, your position, as well as that of the Rambam. Not Varav. He says, I'm not going to challenge the Rambam. I'm not, I'm not, going, to, I'm not going to disagree with him. I'm going to analyze and, and consider and weigh and ask questions. Maybe I'll be able to resolve some of the morass of contradictions and confusion surrounding this sugya. So the Rashper then begins, he cites his correspondent as having said, even things that work are still prohibited, because that's what the Torah prohibits. Exactly that, that's exactly what the Torah prohibits, things that work. And the Rashba says, you should know, you just say that, he says, as if, as if it's obvious, he says, you should know the Rambam does not agree. You may be right. He says, after Shuke and the Rambam does not agree. The Rambam says, on the contrary, like the Ben Ezra, the Torah's prohibitions only concern things that do not work. So we have two opinions. We have the Rambam and the Ben Ezra on the one side. We have the empty-headed people and the Rashba's correspondent on the other side. Now, in terms of those names, not exactly a fair fight. But the Rashba nevertheless says he personally would be inclined to believe that magic does exist. The Rashba was, the Rashba was, not a, was not a profound mystic, but he was skeptical of the whole rationalist worldview. He was not a, uh, certainly not a committed rationalist. The Rashba says he would follow the more traditional approach, as we'll discuss soon, the implication of the preponderance of Talmudic and Midrashic statements that Chazal did believe in magic and all kinds of supernatural stuff. He says, I would agree with you. He brings various Gemaras, he says. And among other things, he brings the two biblical accounts that we began with. He brings the story of the Chartumim and Mitzrayim. He brings the story of the witch at Ein Dar, Shaul's witch. Therefore, he says, both based on Tarsh Bachsav, the biblical text, as well as Tarsh Balpeh, the rabbinic tradition, he says, he personally leans in favor of the view that magic does exist, and that is what the Torah is prohibiting. So as we've said, if we want to, if, if we want to take the Rambam's view, if we want the, insofar we, we have to defend the Rambam, how does the Rambam deal with these two stories? If those who vociferously reject the possibility of all these kinds of occult, uh, paranormal stuff, how do they deal with the two biblical narratives that seem to be recounting with a straight face the practice, the successful practice of occult, uh, occult things? So we'll turn first to the story of Shaul and the witch. There is a remarkable, remarkable passage of the Radak. Radak is Reb David Kimchi. He actually was a follower of the Rambam. He tended, he was certainly favorable toward philosophy. He was a defender of the Rambam in some of the great battles. Nevertheless, he wasn't uh, as hardcore a committed rationalist as the Rambam was. In this particular case, he himself sides with the traditionalist view, which, as we'll see soon, he feels is, again, evident from the preponderance of rabbinic statements. He himself inclines toward the view that these things are actually real, that occult does actually work. Nevertheless, he begins the passage by saying that the Gaonim, and the Gaonim here means the heads of the Babylonian yeshivas, these were the leaders of Jewry, basically, before the medieval period, the ones who the Rishonim always note as having been close to the tradition, called the Rebbe Dever Kabbalah, having been authoritative by virtue of being the heirs, the intellectual heirs of the authors of the Talmud. The Gaonim, the great Gaonim, he says, Hiskimu, they all agreed there was a strong consensus among the Gaonim that there was no such thing as the occult, at least particularly this type of balas oath. It, it, it is bogus. So what exactly was going on in the story of Shaul and the witch? What was going on was the same thing that goes on today. Charlatanery, fraud, manipulation, deception. 
That was it, beginning to end. They all agree, Rav Sadia Gaon, Rav Hai Gaon, Rav Shulman Chafni, all agree that there, is, there was nothing to it in general. The, these people were trained, were con artists, they could, they, they could guess, they could uh, read the person, they could, whatever they could do, they can give vague answers, I guess, like they do today, that there was nothing to anything they did. What actually happened in the story of Shaul and the witch? So Rav ben Chafni, who was noted in general as a maybe lesser-known rationalist than Rav Sadia and the Rambam, but was a very sharp, very committed rationalist, a fiercely independent uh, person, as we'll see in a moment, of the almost shocking comment he says here, he believed that the story of Ov was, again, completely bogus, and even the story recounted by the Navi in Sefer Shmuel was all bogus. Nothing happened, nothing supernatural occurred, the woman simply plied her fraudulent trade, they used to have a guy hiding in a box, and he would throw his voice, and that's why nobody saw anything, they would just hear voices, and so on. Everything was completely bogus. How did she correctly predict the outcome of the battle? She guessed. She read the paper. She was, she, 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 maybe she understood the morale of the army. She made canny guesses. She was a shrewd... a spy for the other side? I don't know. He doesn't suggest that. I suppose it's possible. But he just says that she was, she was clever. She simply guessed, and she had the good fortune of guessing more or less right. She knew they would lose the battle. She guessed they would lose the battle. She, she pretty much saw that they would... Uh, predicted his death, and so on. And he says that she said it, she guessed, she, saw it, she, she assumed that was probably what, what was going to happen. I guess if Shaw lived, maybe she felt he would be grateful enough he would leave her alone. If he didn't live, she'd be seen as a great, uh, very prescient. It was all bogus. So then Rav Shulban Chafni says, he winds up, he says, the AFLP, again, you know, the elephant in the room that he and everyone has to deal with is the fact that the preponderance of statements of Chazal is clearly that they did believe in the occult. So Shul ben Chafni says, In the Talmud itself, Chazal seems to have taken this story literally at face value that she actually performed magic. But Shul ben Chafni doesn't deign to reinterpret, doesn't deign to address it. He simply says, flat out, doesn't matter. We cannot accept such things insofar as they contradict reason. So that's it doesn't make sense, he says. It goes against my rationalist principles. I have a Gemara. I'm not sure what to do with it, he says. He's not dealing with it, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. So, goodbye. Rav Sadia and Rav Hai, he says, they, they disagree. They also agree that, in general, Balas Ov is bogus. That she, in general, had this plan with hiding in a box and everything. In this case, though, they say HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to send Shole a message. So Akash Baruch Hu basically hijacked her, her procedure and actually brought back Shaul from the dead. Not because the sorcerers have any power of that, but as we said earlier, everyone agrees God does what he wants, and God Shmuel. occasionally... Shmuel. Shmuel, yes, thank you. He, he brought back Shmuel for Shaul's benefit from the dead. God certainly can do what he wants and occasionally does. So that's what happened. And she was just as surprised as everyone else. She was terrified. She was, she was maybe even more terrified. She was all prepared to do her thing. All of a sudden, Shmuel actually comes back. Pretty scary. So the Radak does not like this chat. He says, if Akash Baruch Hu really wanted to send Shaul a message, didn't he have a more, uh, you know, more straightforward way of doing it, the, the, what we call the normal channels, prophecy, dreams, if he, wasn't, if he didn't merit prophecy? Is this, is this the best way God could think of to do this? So the, the Radak doesn't like this very much. Also, he says, Shaul was not some kind of a hick from the provinces. Shaul was a, a great man. He was the king of Israel for years. He was a wise man. 
Was Shaul, if it was true that, that the Gaonim understood that this is completely bogus, would a great man like Shaul really have been, really have been misled? Okay, he was desperate, it was the eve of a terrible battle, but still he says it's, it's hard for him to accept that, uh, that Shaul would have been led astray. So again, he says that he personally follows Chazal, that uh, he accepts Chazal, that, that these things actually did happen, and he feels that Chazal believed in the occult, and therefore he does too. But he notes that the Gaonim, the consensus of the Gaonim, the unanimous opinion of the Gaonim was that there is no such thing, and that's how, that's, that is kind of the classic way of uh, interpreting away the story if you don't believe in the occult. Turning now to the story of the Khartoumim. So they did magic, and the Rashba invokes that too. So here again, the goal is going to be to say that there was some kind of sleight of hand. There is a passage of the Ralbag, I didn't include it in the handouts, but the Ralbag. The Ralbag here takes a very, perhaps, surprising position. The Ralbag, in terms of the medievals, the Ralbag was the rationalist par excellence. He was a follower of the Rambam, but somewhat more radical, somewhat uh, more extreme, kind of he took things to their logical extremes. He, he's often linked to the Rambam, but he, was, uh, he, he kind of went a good few steps further and was excoriated for it by later authorities. So the Ralbag, ironically, surprisingly perhaps, the Ralbag here takes the ultimate uh, scientific position, which is, I have no evidence, I don't know, I cannot make a definitive statement about whether black magic exists or not. The Ralbag says, these sorcerers in Mitzrayim clearly were doing things that looked like magic. What did they actually do? He says, hard to know. He says, how do they do it? Either it was through Achizah Seinayim, what we call sleight of hand, delusion. They can make people think things were happening, although they weren't. Or, he says, they actually had tricks using you know, secrets of nature where they could do things that ordinary people who don't know their tricks couldn't fathom. Or, he says, there actually is such a thing as sorcery, he says, if that's possible. And then he concludes, Lo no delanu ad hayo We haven't seen, I haven't, I haven't seen, he says, until this day, I haven't been able to make a sufficient investigation of sorcery. I have nothing further to say. I'm not going to make dogmatic statements about something about which I have no knowledge. The Rambam was willing to, but the Ralbag was unwilling to. Ralbag you know, is a little skeptical about it, he says, but he ultimately, he's not sure. He entertains the possibility that these were mere illusion and not actual things. Although he says, maybe they were, maybe there is such a thing as sorcery. He doesn't really know. And there have been, I think, even in the 20th century, fairly great scientists and mathematicians who, a minority to be sure, but who kept an open mind. I think um, Alan Turing, I think, was famous for... Uh, having been heavily interested in uh, parapsychology and wanting to see evidence one way or another. Because again, you know, ultimately, science, ultimately science is about empiricism. You shouldn't be totally willing to rule something out until you've at least uh, investigated. Once you've done enough trials and they fail to show up, at some point, obviously, you're justified in concluding that if it constantly fails to make an appearance, then it probably doesn't exist. But in any event, Earl Bagg, in his time, in his place, didn't have that kind of uh, body of empirical evidence, and he was unwilling to commit himself. But those who defend the Rambam the Rambam who believed that these things do not exist, they basically explained that these were illusions, that these were sleight of hand. The term of art is in, in Hebrew and rabbinic literature is achizas enayim, illusion, literally seizing the eyes, meaning, meaning manipulating someone's perception into causing him, magicians talk about misdirection and so on, causing people to think they've seen things, to think they've witnessed things that, that, that actually haven't occurred and certainly weren't certainly weren't witness power of suggestion, the hand is quicker than the eye, and the, the commentators actually use this type of, this type of knowledge, kalos hatnua, and so on, swiftness of movement, 
that these things were done through illusion. The Malvin themselves, perhaps surprisingly again, the Malvin being a fairly traditional commentator in the 19th century, who generally, the whole goal of his commentary is kind of to buttress and strengthen traditional rabbinic interpretations of Tanakh in the face of the reform, in the face of the modern, the, the, the proto-modern era of skepticism. The Malvin wrote his whole commentary to support Chazal. Nevertheless, for some mysterious reason, I'm not really an expert in Malvin, perhaps those who are more familiar with his commentary understand the context better than I do, but the Malvin, nevertheless, in the parsha of the, of the Khartoumim, he explains the whole thing in terms of chicanery, that they were, they were, they were frauds. He says that he actually notes the, the difference in language between the Chachamim, Machashim, and Khartoumim. He basically understands that the senior ones, the, were the, the puppet masters, were the Machashim and the Chachamim. The Khartoumim were these little kids, five-year-olds, he says, who were trained. He brings the Chazal who say these were little kids. These were trained as kind of assistants. The way they would turn sticks into snakes, for example, he says, is the, the senior puppet masters would throw down the sticks. They would have these little kids who would come in with snake skins. I guess they'd be going really fast if there was a lot of smoke or it was dark. They would grab the sticks. They would secrete them under the skins, and they would then go under the skins themselves, and they would wriggle around like little snakes on the floor. And this would all be happening so skillfully and so fast and so, uh, I guess, under the proper lighting and the proper conditions. It could fool at least gullible observers. It could fool them into thinking that it actually happened. And that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that the, the commentators who defend the Rambam, that's how they explain that's what was going on here. Now, Barbanel, Barbanel also brings two sides, and he himself is commonly more favorable toward the view that the supernatural does exist, in spite of him being a somewhat uh, you know, rationalist thinker by the standards of his time. He was not comfortable with the Rambam, his more extreme rationalism. In cases like this, he often quotes the Rambam, quotes the dissenting opinions, he explains both sides, although he personally favors the, the more traditional view. He also says that this was done by uh, fraudulent methods. He proposes a slightly different mechanism of fraud. Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's court, he says what happened was when what happened was when Moshe turned all the blood in, all the water into blood. So what happened was all the river water turned into blood. And when, when people would then go dig wells and dig up new water, he says that water also turned into blood. But the Khartoumim could pretend that they, they were the ones doing that. They would tell power, look what we can do. They would take their shovels, dig into the earth, pull out some water. The water would immediately turn into blood. That was really because Moshe had, Moshe had made the miracle with God that any water that would be unearthed, literally unearthed, would turn into blood. But the Khartoumim said, look, we did it. So they would manage to sneak in there and take credit just by, just by manipulating events in the right way. They would convince people that they were the ones who were doing it, even though they actually had no power to do anything. This is actually a famous, I don't have this in my notes, minor digression, but this is actually a famous idea. It goes back again to the Gaonic period, and an ancient uh, Jewish idea. At the Makkah of Tzvardea, so after Paro was miserable and had enough, so Moshe reappeared to Paro, and Moshe said, it's Paro a lie. Make my day. Tell, tell, me when, tell me when you want me to get rid of the Tzvardea. So Paro said, Lamacher. So people ask, why Lamachar? Wouldn't Paro have said now, five minutes ago? You know, why, why, why was Paro waiting another day? So there is this idea, some commentators suggest, that Paro thought Moshe was simply a charlatan. Paro thought that Moshe was simply knew how to predict natural phenomena, and Moshe was taking advantage and claiming credit. So Paro thought that Moshe, would, Paro suspected Moshe might have been appearing at exactly the time he knew that Tzvardeo was about to disappear, and he knew that Paro would say right away, and he would say, poof, there go the Tzvardeo. So Paro thought he would throw a wrench in the spokes by saying tomorrow. Of course, Moshe was actually performing the miracle, so it was no problem. 
This idea is famous in, in Twain, in Connecticut Yankee, in Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court with an eclipse. But actually, it's an idea that appears, I once did a little, uh, once wrote a little bit about this, it appears in a number of different uh, noted works of fiction, everything from, from Tintin to Mark Twain to various other works of fiction and fantasy. The story actually is rooted in something of a true story. Apparently, there, there, you know, relatively, relatively serious sources tell that Columbus actually once did something like this. He was once having trouble with the native populace of some island in the Americas. He knew there would be an eclipse. He knew there would be an eclipse. He actually knew, minor historical bit of trivia, he knew there was an eclipse. They didn't do what he said, that the moon Yes, right. He knew there was going to be an eclipse. They didn't bring him provisions. Yeah, that's what I said. So, right, so, right, so that's bringing provisions. He demanded they, they support him and bring him what he needed. According to the story, the way he knew, way he knew about this, this eclipse was through an almanac before they had uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, he actually knew the map. He was an yeah. amazing guy. Okay, but, the, but, but specifically they say he used an almanac, and the one in question was won by a famous Jewish scholar, Avram Zakut, the author of the Yuxin, who was also a famous astronomer. According to, I don't think this is just revision. I, think this is, I, I don't have the source in front of me. I think these are actual, uh, at least historical or quasi-historical documents. He had, and he, had and he had an almanac, and he was able to fake it and convince the natives that he could put out the sun. No almanacs in those days in Central America. He had to figure out where it Okay, was. so the, no there, there might be. The, there, was no there might be. Almanac for Central okay, America. okay, so let me just move on. Let me just move on. But I. I, I had to use the map. There, there were almanacs in Europe, and I think the story goes that he brought one with him from Europe, which hopefully I guess covered that part of the world too. However, it was, right, this is an old idea. We didn't know that part of the world existed. And a court, good point. According to some Gaonim, according to some Gaonim, this was actually the, the debate between Paro and Moshe, the challenge that Paro was issuing, and, and according to the, the Rabbanel, that's how the sorcerers did that's how the sorcerers did their magic in the first place. That's why they accused Moshe, I guess, of doing that, because Kalapostal Postal, that's what they were doing. They were simply taking credit for Moshe's work. So I wanted to spend a few minutes now. Now again, I, 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 before I go on, I just want to point out that just to be perfectly clear. This might be a view that I and probably some of you are sympathetic to, that the occult is not real. The more traditional normative view, the preponderance of rabbinic sources indicate that the rabbis did indeed believe in a whole array of what we would consider sorcerous, uh, sorcerous stuff. To the extent there is a famous uh, diatribe of the Gon, the Vilna Gon, where he vehemently attacks the Rambam for it. It's, it's actually a very strange business, a very odd, very peculiar thing. The, the Rambam, again, the Rambam as we began, the Rambam writes in the Yad HaZakah that this stuff is all bogus. And when he talks about lachash, incantations, a muttering, whispering formula to heal a wound, so the Rambam uses language that you can do it even though it doesn't work because it makes the guy feel better, what we would call the placebo effect or something like that. So the Shulchan Aruch, who often follows the Rambam's language in his codification, Shulchan Aruch codifies that language. You're allowed to do lachash even though it doesn't work because it makes the guy feel better. Now, the, 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 the perplexing thing is that the Shulchan Aruch almost certainly did believe in magic. He was a great Kabbalist. He was, uh, his worldview was permeated by, by the Magid. By, by a, by a, he was heavily invested in, a, in Kabbalistic theology. So he certainly was an expert in the Rambam, but it's hard to imagine that he really subscribed to the Rambam's worldview in this. Nevertheless, at least for the purposes of his halachic work, he was willing to codify this line of the Rambam, either just out of deference to the Rambam, it didn't really matter, the halacha was the same either way. He codified the Rambam's language that you were allowed to use mutters, make sorcerous incantations, even though they don't work. Adabra kadabra. Yeah. So, so the, the Gon, the Vilna Gon, has two famous attacks in Shulchan Aruch on the Rambam. One of them is right here. The, the, the Gon has a vehement slashing attack on the Rambam, where he writes that in number five, everyone who followed the Rambam disagrees with him. 
the, and the main argument is because the Talmud is full of references to magic and the biblical text, the two examples that we gave are, and he, he gives a whole laundry list of things the Ram didn't believe in, kshafim, sorcery, shemas, magical divine names, lachashim, incantations, shedim, demons, kmeos, amulets, hakolu sheker, the Rambam believes this is all bogus, however he says, parhikuos, kado. everyone already beat the Rambam over the head for this, he goes on, and in the last line or two he says, the Rambam was led astray by philosophia harura. Some, some editions of the Shulchan Aruch took out the word harura. Cursed philosophy, they just left it as philosophy. But whatever it was, seductive Greek philosophy led the Rambam astray. It was so terrible. I don't believe it, the Gon says. Chas v'shalom, I don't believe what the Rambam says. Everything Chazal said are kipshuta and should be interpreted literally. And that, I think it's fair to say, represents the mainstream view in Judaism. Despite the Rambam is certainly an important view, but I think it is probably the minority view certainly today. So I just want to spend the last few minutes talking about the question of whether magic for entertainment, the magic that we see today at parties and so on, at shows, whether the magic that we do, is that permitted from a halachic perspective? And the answer is perhaps surprising. The answer is that the simple reading of the halachic literature is that it is indeed deeply problematic. Obviously there is something of a contemporary practice to do it, but as we'll see in the brief survey, the the halakha rather frowns on, on this behavior. The discussion, again, begins with the Rambam, different Rambam this time. In number six, I quote the Rambam from the Sefer HaMitzvahs. Mitzvah number 32, the mitzvah of lo se'onenu, ma'onenu, menachesh, is one of the many different words the Torah uses for sorcery. The Rambam explains there are several different categories of prohibited behavior here. One of them is, he, he literally, sleight of hand, achiza se'nayim. And the Rambam's examples are remarkable in that they are still current today. The kind of tricks that he discusses are still among the magician's popular tricks. For example, one of the things he says is that sometimes what they do is, he says, about the fourth line, he says, Zorik tabas laver, he throws a ring into the air, he pulls it out of someone's mouth. These kind of party tricks, these kind of magician's tricks, he says, these are things that are done through sleight of hand. The words he uses are tachbulos, kalos tnuas, kalos tnuas ayad, the quickness of the movement of the hand, the hand is quicker than the eye, until people look, it looks like, it seems to people, he's really doing magic. These are the sorts of things that this is called Nachizah Seinayim, sleight of hand. Fooling people, he says, this is prohibited. The Ram goes on. Not only is it a form of prohibited magic, it's a form of Gnevis Das. You're fooling people. It's not, it's, it's not legitimate. It's terrible, he says. It causes people to believe in, 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 in magic power, and, it's, and, and it fools people, and it's terrible, and it's pernicious, and it is Asur, Tanisur, Daraisa. So based on this, now again, this is the Ram say for a mitzvah. This is not what he writes in the Yad HaZakah necessarily. But based on this, a number of leading mainline posts have come to the conclusion that the, in the magic, in the modern sense, magic performed for entertainment at parties and so on is prohibited. I just have one representative quote, the Chachmas Adam, the Chayadim Sefer on Yerdea, one of the leading posts in the Lithuanian world, certainly in the 19th century. He says, he quotes the Rambam, doesn't engage in any more robust discussion. He just says, finished, he says, based on the Rambam, those things, he says, they do at chasanas, v'nikroi and tashen spieler. Spieler are players or games. I'm not sure what tashen are, pockets. I don't know what these are, but basically performers, entertainers at parties who do magic, he says, over and below daraisa, are engaged in biblically prohibited behavior. Hametzavala sosan, the client, the customer who orders them, is over lufneiver. He violates the prohibition of lufneiver, causing someone to do a sin. Misha biyado limchos, anyone who has the power to protest and put a stop to this. Tzarech Limchos, the Kolshkin, he says, the audience is not allowed to participate, a fortiori, Lestakel, Veloroso, you're not allowed to be a spectator at such an event. The one exception he gives you, the one loophole is, 
If the performer is a non-Jew, then it is okay. And the logic is fairly simple. The logic is these prohibitions, idol worship is prohibited even for non-Jews, one of the seven Noachide laws. Other laws are not. The other Targum Mitzvahs are only for Jews. Kishuf and all its associated lavim, even though they might be conceptually related to idol worship, they are actually separate prohibitions. According to many, or normative view, non-Jews are not obligated, are not prohibited to engage in sorcery. Therefore, if a non-Jew is doing it, for him it's okay, and even if you order it, there's no problem, you're allowed to ask a non-Jew to do something. You're, now, in certain cases we ask for him, you're lakum, and so on. But in this case, you might be allowed to do it, if a, you might be allowed to order a non-Jewish magician. Among contemporary poskim, the one who is most vehemently opposed to magic is Rav Avadi Yosef. Rav Avadi Yosef has two unequivocal tshuvas, one in his Yabiya Omer, one in his Yechavadat, in which he goes through the whole sugya. He opens and closes with the Rambam, the Chayadam, and a whole slew of related sources, that the simple question, it violates its biblical lav, daraisa, according to the Rambam, according to the Chayadam, and so on. Ravavadya, who's not known for being especially stringent, nevertheless, in this area, he feels that an honest and an unbiased view of the sources indicates that even simple sleight of hand, even party tricks, are prohibited under the prohibition of Losa Odenu, of Achizah Sinayim. Ravadya, therefore, says, following the Chayadam, it is only pro- permitted if you have a non Jewish entertainer, then there is. Not a slam dunk, he says. Then there's at least basis to be makil for the mitzvah of entertaining chassid and kala. But in general, he says, a Jewish performer is usher. You're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to watch it. You're not allowed to do anything. And end of the story. And this view is not limited to ravavadia or to fanatics. If you look online, you'll find, a, you'll find on the website of the CRC, the Chicago Rabbinic Council, and that's a letter actually signed by leading modern Orthodox uh, rabbanim, Rabbi Dov Schwartz, of YU, they have a letter basically following this Chayadam. They say magic is prohibited, magic for entertainment is usher, it may not be done. End of the story, Chayadam says so, and that's it, and it's usher. Now, obviously, we know that there is a pretty widespread custom that Jews do, do both uh, commission and attend magic shows. Not everything which is a widespread custom is mutter, but it's, as it so happens here, there are also a number of leading postkim who do have room for leniency. Perhaps most important for us in the United States is Ramosha Feinstein. Ramosha Feinstein was asked by Rabbi Daniel Neustadt, who actually has a very nice article on the topic where he quotes Ramosha and letter to him and many others, asked about magic shows. And while Ramosha acknowledges that the Chayadam and earlier sources, that there is a pretty strong basis in halacha to prohibit magic for entertainment, Ramosha himself feels conceptually that's implausible. He says, the talent of being a good magician, of, of being good at misdirection and sleight of hand, is simply a God-given talent, just like being a very swift runner is, or being a, being a very strong weightlifter is, a shot putter, or anything else, he says. There is no prohibition of exercising one's God-given talents. Therefore, he says, as long as it is very clear to everyone that there is no, no, that there is no, there's no attempt to fool anyone and to pretend you're doing actual magic, as long as it is perfectly and transparently clear from beginning to end that it is simply entertainment and you're simply, you're simply showing what you can do, your skills as a, as, as a magician, that should be fine. Ramosha Gilor goes on, he's not so sure. He admits that great post from earlier generations prohibited. He said he was writing this theoretically, Nahalachalamaisa. Ramosha very much kind of, you read Rabbi Neustadt's article, kind of waffles back and forth. He personally is strongly inclined to think it should be mutter. But he says for the covet of the earlier authorities, he doesn't want to come out and write that it's actually mutter, although his inclination is that it's mutter. And in a similar vein, 
many other leading contemporary poskim have argued the same basic, basic rule that even the Chiza Seinayim that was prohibited by the earlier commentators, the earlier authorities, that was a Chiza Seinayim where there was a deliberate attempt to defraud, like to, to fool people. Like the Rambam says, you're over Gnevis Das, you're fooling people. So if, if the goal and the, the, the way you're doing it is to actually fool people, like some of the mentalists or others are doing, that's an Isser Daraisa. But pure entertainment where nobody, there's no pretense at all of actual magic, many postmen are inclined to be lenient. That actually, that, that they go out of their way, though, to argue that it's not enough that this should be a simply that most sensible people understand it. They actually, some of them go much further. Some of them actually require the magician to have a prominently displayed sign in the vernacular, not in Hebrew, <laughs> saying, this is not magic, this is entertainment. Some of them, Rav Chaim Perch Scheinberg, I saw quoted, actually said that... the opposite, it's not entertainment. All right. But, uh, but in addition to that, Rav Scheinbrook said the magician should actually demonstrate how one of his tricks is done. And the magician's cardinal rule is never show how your tricks are done. doesn't say you have to show all of them, he says, but you should at least give one demonstration just so everyone should understand that what I'm doing is tricks and trade. So the post can disagree as to how blatant and how overt and how much you have to beat people over the head. But the lenient view is based on this, is based on the idea that when the, when the, the main reason to be lenient is that when the earlier post can said it was prohibited as an issue so they meant... The, the Rambam says it leads to Vodazara. When, when the Rambam explains why it's so pernicious, the Rambam says in the Sefer Mitzvahs that the reason it's so terrible is because it caused people to believe that impossible things are possible and it damages their, their sense of, uh, of the plausible, of the possible. So again, a, a lot of the, the objection the Torah has is based on the fact that you're, you're messing with people's heads and you're misleading them and you're causing them to get bad ideas in their heads. Many posts can therefore say reasonably enough that as long as it's something which makes sense and is something which is... Uh, Everyone understands it's purely entertainment. Nobody's taking it seriously. There is a base in the post lean. But again, it's not a slam dunk. The, the Ravadi held to it. Ravadi dismisses this chilek and says, sorry? But that's Yeah, in two different shuvas. And if you look online, if you read many of the Svardic uh, halacha columns, they say, Maran says it's Asr, so you know, for us it's Asr. But nevertheless, there are many posts who are lenient, and there is at least some basis for leniency, even though it is by no means a slam dunk, and, and it's a serious halachic issue.